this point and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, kids, if, you haven't head, uh, heading, if you're not heading out, go ahead and do that at this point. And for the rest of us that are sticking around, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you'll find that in your New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there at the beginning of uh, the New Testament, you find the Gospel of Luke. And turn with me to, to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16 is where we are going to be today. We're starting a new sermon series that I've been excited about for quite a while called The Twelve. And uh, we will be exploring the lives of the twelve disciples of Christ, seeing how God took ordinary men and did extraordinary things to demonstrate that he is an extraordinary God. So I trust that you're there, Luke chapter 6. If you don't have uh, your own Bible, the text should be up on the screen. So let's pray together, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the privilege that it is for us to, to dig into your word. I pray as we begin this study on the lives of these men that are, in one sense, most ordinary, uh, fishermen and common men of their day, not trained, not educated, uh, not necessarily the cream of the crop. And yet, in your great wisdom and grace, you chose them to be the initial apostles, those who were closest to our Lord Jesus. And you chose these 12 men, quite literally, to change the world and to make the gospel known into every nation, into every part of our world. You took their defects, you took their character flaws, you took their personalities, you took their strengths, and you took their weaknesses, and you taught them and shaped them and empowered them by your spirit. You rounded off uh, the rough edges, and you made something extraordinary out of these ordinary men. Father, thank you that you did that for them, and thank you that you're still in the business of doing that today, that you do that in our lives, that you take those of us who um, are ordinary, and you do extraordinary things, because you indeed are a great God. So would you teach us from the lives of these men that we can most relate to how you do that and how you want to do that in our lives for your glory and for our good. In the name of Christ, we ask it. And all of God's people said together, amen. So I want to ask you a quick question. If you were asked to assemble, let's say you're a part of a committee, and you, maybe along with a group of other men and women, were asked to assemble the best basketball team in the world. That's your assigned task, to assemble the best basketball team in the world that would almost be assured to win every single game, to play in a tournament uh, in which nations from around the world will compete, and you want to build a team that will uh, demolish, certainly not ever lose a game, it will bring home uh, the gold medal. How would you do that? How would you go about doing that? Well, most likely, if you were on that committee, you would first of all go to the NBA, because we know the NBA is the National Basketball Association. That's where the best of the best from around the world, and certainly from our country, play, play their ball. And so most likely you would go and you would start in the NBA, and what would you do? Would you look for the person sitting on the end of the bench? Well, no, of course not. You would look for the starters. And even more than that, you would survey every team to, to see who is the best player 
not only on that team, but for their position. So you would look at the point guards. You would look at the shooting guards. You would look at the small forwards. You would look at the power forwards. You would look at the centers, and you would say, who's the best center that I can have? Who's the best point guard that I can have? Many people think that in the year uh, 1992, the U.S. men's Olympic basketball team was that team. There's a picture of them behind me. Uh, They are known as the what, church? The Dream Team. I don't know if you keep up with that, but they were known as the Dream Team. Because if I am not mistaken, that was the year that professionals, at least in America, could represent the United States in the Olympics. And so uh, a committee gathered a team that uh, had the best players, the most skilled players at their position, and the team included some legends. I mean, maybe all of these guys, of course, not Christian Leitner. <laughs> he was kind of a dud. But the rest of them... <laughs> Better than I would ever be, but he was kind of the dead of the group. But the rest of them, I mean, full of Hall of Fame players. Just take a look at, 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 at that picture there. You've got the likes of who? Of course, we know from Chicago, Michael Jordan, of course. You've got Magic Johnson running the point, a 6'10 point guard. Who does that, right? Magic does. You've got Larry Bird. I mean, Larry Bird over there from French Lick, Indiana, right? Shooting it up at small forward. You've got David Robinson, one of the best centers of all time played for the San Antonio Spurs back in Texas. Uh, And and the list just goes on and on, right? They got the best guys. So what happened there in 1992? Anybody know? Well, essentially what happened is that they won every game. They ran roughshod through the competition. It wasn't even close. Uh, I did a little uh, looking, and I saw that they won their games in the Olympic tournament by an average of, want to take a guess? What? 30, 40, 43 points. They beat their teams by an average of 43 points. And so if you were on a committee and you assembled a dream team like this one with the goal in mind to win the Olympics, well, you would pretty much uh, be 100%. You, you would do that. Um, so let me ask you another question. We can move past that dream team. And we're going to move to a different kind of dream team. Let me ask you a different question. What if you were asked to assemble a spiritual dream team? A spiritual dream team, not to win games or gold medals, but to win souls. To win souls for the gospel of Christ. To take the message of what Christ did in his life and in his death. Who would you choose? How would you go about doing that? If you were on a committee, what would you do? Well, would you find the most gifted of men and women of our day? Would you find the, the best preachers? Would you find the, the most precise theologian? Would you find the most experienced pastor? Would you find the most uh, successful missionary? How would you do it? Would you go across the, the great mega churches of our land and take the lead pastors and throw the, the team together, the, the spiritual dream team? How would you do it? More importantly... The question, really, that we're going to look at today is, how did God do it? How did Jesus do it? If Jesus wanted to pick a spiritual dream team to fulfill his mission, to not win games, but to win souls, how would he do it? Would he do it like us? Do you think he'd do it like us? Shake your head, church. No, he wouldn't do it like us. And in fact, what we're going to find out both this morning and in the weeks to come is that he didn't do it like us. In fact, he did it very different from how we would do it. Because what Jesus did is he found the most ordinary of men, 
the most average of Joes. And he did it because he wanted to show not that they were great, but that he was great. And he did it to show not that they were powerful, but that he was powerful. He did it to demonstrate his grace and to make his glory and his gospel known. John MacArthur has written a book that I'm going to rely upon pretty heavily in this sermon series. It's called Twelve Ordinary Men. I would highly recommend it to anyone. In that book, he says this. He says, think about the ramifications of this. From our human perspective, the the propagation of the gospel and the founding of the church hinged entirely on 12 men whose most outstanding characteristic was their ordinariness. Yet with all of their faults and character, character flaws, as remarkably ordinary as they were, these men carried on a ministry after Jesus' ascension that left an indelible impact on the world. Ordinary men, people like you and me, became instruments by which Christ's message was carried to the ends of the earth. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. Twelve ordinary men to demonstrate that there is one extraordinary God. So if you have your Bibles open, turn with me and look now in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12, and running through verse 16, we are introduced to God's dream team, to Jesus' dream team. Let's meet them as we read through this passage initially, and then we will work our way through it. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Luke writes, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Now when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who is called the Zealot, Judas son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. You know, we saw the group picture of the United States dream team, right? Twelve men. Here's here's Jesus' dream team. A list of twelve men. So if you're taking notes, I want you to jot down four things. Four things that we're going to notice from this passage. Four T's, right? Four T's that we see from this passage. First of all, we're going to see the timing. I want us to see the timing of Jesus' call and appointment of these 12 men to apostleship. So we'll see the timing first. Secondly, we'll see something about the teacher. We'll see something about how Jesus, the great rabbi, the great teacher, how he came to choose these 12 men. Thirdly, we'll see the task. What is the task or the job that Jesus appointed them to? We'll see the task. And fourthly, we will end with what I call the 12. And we'll see some characteristics of these men as a group. And then for the rest of our time during this series, we will walk uh, one by one through the 12 disciples. So let's start now in verse 12, noticing the timing. Let's notice the timing of these events. It's a short phrase, and it begins the sentence. Notice the beginning of verse 12 says, one of those days. One of those days. One of what days? What if, what, what's the context here? What, what's going on so that the 
writer, Luke, would point out that in, it was in the midst of these days, it was at this time that Jesus appointed his disciples. What time? Well, the timing of Jesus' call of these men is very significant. In fact, I would call it pivotal. So what was going on? You don't have to turn there, but what you'll notice is if you read through the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 5, verse 17, and running right up until our section, ending in chapter 6, verse 11, what you'll find out is that Luke records four consecutive accounts of hostility being shown to Jesus. Four consecutive events in where Jesus and those from the religious establishment clash. There's conflict going on, and it's escalating. The conflict is happening, and it's escalating so much that in verse 11 of chapter 6, we see both from Luke's gospel and other parallel accounts that it got so bad that they decided, they had predetermined, we're going to get rid of this guy. We're going to kill this guy. He's causing us so much trouble that we have to do something. And so the religious establishments come together and they say, he must die. And so this is the context. It's in the midst of these kind of days that Jesus then pulls aside and he says, it's time for me to appoint the men that are going to carry on my mission after they kill me and after I am raised from the dead, and after I'm ascended into heaven. So under the looming shadow of the cross, this decision was made. Under the looming shadow of the cross, just about 18 months away, Jesus had already completed about a a year and a half of his three-year ministry. He's halfway done. The conflict is at fever pitch. He, He knows that they have decided that he is expendable. And so he says, I need to make an investment, a very substantial and significant decision to pour my life and my mission into some men who will then take it after I'm gone. So under the looming shadow of the cross, Jesus shifts his focus. He shifts his focus from a ministry to the multitudes that we see early in his gospel ministry to a more narrow focus of just these 12 men. It was a pivotal time, and that leads us to our first principle for you and I today. And that is this. God calls us, you and I, those of us who are believers in Christ, God also calls us to mission, us to join in the movement to preach the gospel and to bring God's kingdom to this world. God also calls us to mission at a very pivotal time. Um, Acts chapter, I'm not exactly sure, I think it's Acts 17. Paul is preaching, and he's preaching to pagans. And this is my paraphrase. But essentially, he's preaching this sermon. He says, listen, God arranges so that people live their lives at the time and at the place, just as he appoints, so that all people may call on God, so that we might seek his face, that we might join him on his mission. And so the point is, is that if you live here in Cisna Park or in Buckley or wherever you live, if you live here now in central Illinois, guess what? It's not by chance. It's God's plan for you. And if you live here in the 21st century during this time period, guess what? You're here for a reason. It's not just chance. God calls you and me to mission also at a pivotal time. So let me just say a couple things. It's a pivotal time in the history of our country. 
Secularism is on the rise. Religion is on the decline. Christianity is under attack. It's under fire. We're becoming the minority. We are becoming more distinct. The way that we think, the way that we act, what we believe about all sorts of things is under fire. The culture is shifting And it's a pivotal time to be a Christian. God has called you and made you a Christian for this time so that we might be a genuine alternative to the culture. The culture is not going God's way. So what are we doing, church? Are we going the culture's way? Are we going God's way? And if as a church we're living our life as true, genuine Christians, what we are and what we think will be a genuine alternative. People will say, it's this or that. There will be no more nominal Christianity because there's not going to be any benefit to calling yourself a Christian in a post-Christian era. And so it's difficult. We have the chance to suffer like Jesus suffered and to preach the gospel and to make a real impact. I'm so encouraged because when I think about the culture, the first century culture there in the Greco-Roman world, We think that our culture is going south. Boy, they are like, they are as farther south than anybody could ever think, right? They're on the South Pole. Their culture was far less Christian than ours. And guess what God did? At that time, in that pagan corrupt culture, he birthed the church. And was the church effective in the first century? Shake your head yes at me, church. Yes, it was super effective. And so I'm encouraged We can do that again today. So, we've seen the timing, right? It's a pivotal time. He calls these men to mission. Secondly, we see the teacher. What do we see about how Jesus did this? What did Jesus do to choose these 12 men? Well, notice what the tail end of verse 12 says. It says that Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent an hour praying to God. Wait, is that what it said? No, no, no. Let's read it again. Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray, and he spent the what? The night. He spent the night praying to God. So let's just let that sink in a minute. The sun sets. Let's say it sets around 7 o'clock. And Jesus ascends to the hill. He leaves his large group, the 12 and others, and he leaves them behind. They eat their dinner. Maybe they fall asleep. And Jesus is up on the mountain. He can still see the fire, uh, the campfire of his, of his disciples just kind of going to keep them warm in the middle of the night. And what does he do? He's looking down on his disciples and he's praying to his Father. He's having conversations with the Holy Spirit. He's having inter-Trinitarian prayer. Not for an hour, not for two hours, roughly for eight to ten hours. In the Greek... The word that is translated in our Bible here, he spent the night praying. It's really just one word, and it means this, to endure at a task through the night, to endure at a task through the night. So have you ever pulled an all-nighter, maybe in college or in high school, stayed up all night because you're cramming for that test? Maybe uh, those of you who have worked the night shift, you understand this really well. You are working throughout the night. You are enduring at a task. Even though your body says it's time to sleep, you fight those urges. I'm tired, but I have to do my job. I'm tired, but I have to study. Well, what Jesus was saying is, I'm tired in my humanity. I'm tired, but I have to pray. He's enduring. He's fighting off sleep for the sake of 
talking to his father about whom down on that, that valley would be the twelve. He's praying to God. He wants to know. He wants to make sure that he's in line with the Trinity. MacArthur says this. He says, don't miss the point. The choice Christ would soon make was of such monumental importance that it required 10 to 12 hours of prayer in preparation. Have you ever made a decision that you thought required 10 to 12 hours of prayer? I don't know if I ever have. It shows how utterly significant this was. And it leads us to a second principle. The second principle is this. Great works of God begin in prayer. What was Jesus starting? He was starting to choose those 12 men who would then be sent out into the world to share the good news with everybody, what he had done. It was of utter importance, this most significant work of establishing the church in the world was going to start with these 12 guys. Great works of God often, if not always, begin in prayer. So let me ask myself, let me ask you a question. How badly do we really want God to move? I mean, how badly do we really want to see him do something in our family, in our church, in our town, in our state, in our country, in our world? How badly do we want a great movement of God to happen? It starts with prayer. So I had to ask myself, why don't I pray like Jesus? And not just like 12 hours. That would be like, uh, maybe someday we will get there. I'm just, one hour, one hour. How about two? Why don't, why don't, why don't we even do that? I think it's because we don't believe what Jesus believed. That great works of God really begin in prayer. And I was convicted of this. If I really thought that, I'd be praying a lot more. If I really believed that, I would be praying. And you and I would be praying a lot more. So in the weeks to come, what I'd like to do is utilize a few Sunday nights. We don't have regular meetings on Sunday nights, but I'd like to utilize some of our Sunday nights to come together as a church and just to pray. Because if great works of God begin in, in prayer, then what do we need to do, church? We need to pray. <laughs> it's not that hard. We need to pray. And so, will you be willing to consider that in the weeks to come? Would you be willing to consider missing your sporting events or your TV shows or your shopping runs or your Sunday night football? Yes, even Sunday night football. Even if A&M is playing, which they won't be on Sunday night. Even if the Bears are playing, right? Would you be willing to do that? We've seen the timing of their call. We've seen the teacher and what he's done. Third, we see the task. We see the task that he calls them to do. I ran across a quick story, and it was written by a, uh, a guy by the name of S.D. Gordon. And he's written a little book called Quiet Talks on Service. Quiet Talks on Service. And in that little book, Dr. Gordon paints a, a scenario. He paints a... He paints a picture. It's a, it's a fantasy, really. It's not real, but I think it's vivid. And it demonstrates, I think, the nature of the task that he's calling these men to do. And I quote him. He shows Jesus walking down the streets of heaven, having just returned from earth after his ascension. So he's died, he's, he's risen from the dead, and he is ascended, right? And so he makes his way up to heaven. And of course, heaven is, is glad to meet him. They're overjoyed that... 
the second member of the Trinity is, is back in heaven, and he locks arms and takes a long walk with Gabriel. And as they walk, Gabriel engages Jesus in a conversation that goes something like this. Master, you died for the whole world down there, did you not? Yes, Jesus replied. You, you, mu- you must have suffered much. Yes, the Lord said. And then, do they know? Do they all know what you did for them? Asked Gabriel. Oh no, Jesus replied. Oh no, only a few in Palestine know about it so far. To which Gabriel responds, Master, Master, what is your plan? What have you done to tell the whole world that you died for them, that you shed your blood for all of them? What is your plan? Tell me. To which Jesus responds, Well, I asked Peter and James and John and a few others if they would make it the business of their lives to tell others. And then the ones that they tell could tell others, and the ones that they tell could also tell others, and finally it would reach the end of the earth and everybody would know the gospel. To which Gabriel, after a a moment's pause to consider that, replies with these words, But Master, suppose that Peter fails. Suppose that after a while, John just doesn't want to tell anyone anymore. And and James, what if he's afraid? And what if Andrew is ashamed? Then what? To which Jesus responds, Gabriel, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting totally on them. There is no plan B. That's the nature of the task that we see Jesus calling these men to in verse 13. Let's read it together. When morning came, he called the disciples to himself, and he chose 12 of them, who he also designated as what, church? Apostles, as apostles. So this is what's going on. Jesus had a large group of of followers. Here it's called, they're called disciples. It's methetes in Greek. It just means a learner. They're just learning, right? So a big group of guys, at least 70, we know, if not more, this large group. They were his followers. They were learning from him. But Jesus is going to hand select 12 apostles. The term apostle simply means a messenger or one who is sent out. They are his official ambassadors. They are his official representatives, if you will. And what we see in the Gospels and Acts is that they had unique ambassador roles. They were unique ambassadors for Christ to take his message. They had seen him. They had been with him. That was one of the prerequisites of being an apostle. They had seen and and been with Jesus personally and physically physically. In the early church, they held a position of leadership. When you read through the gospel of uh, the the book of Acts, they're leading the church. Also, they have doctrinal authority. Remember, the church met and they considered the apostles what? The apostles' teaching. The apostles' doctrine. They set the doctrine for the church. They had special abilities to do miracles to confirm their message. Essentially, they were his ambassadors. And just as the story said, they were to take their message from the king as official ambassadors to tell everyone. And that leads us to a third principle for you and I. Not only were these 12 men uniquely ambassadors, but we also, in a similar sense, are also tasked as ambassadors. We are ambassadors. You don't have to turn there, but I'd like to read 2 Corinthians 5. 
2 Corinthians 5.20, we see this. Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. Notice the language. God in heaven is making his appeal to people on earth through who? Us, right? We take the message from the king and we take it out to other people. He says, we implore you on Christ's behalf. So what's the message? As ambassadors, what's the message that we take out? Paul's going to tell us. He says, we implore you, be reconciled to God. You're not right with God. That's That's the message. That's how it starts. You're not right with God. You need to be made right with God. And here's how. Verse 21, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, perfect, sinless, always obedient for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's the message of the apostles and of ambassadors today? It's simply that you're not right with God. You need to be made right with God. You deserve justice, uh, but God offers you grace. You deserve to go to hell, but God offers you heaven. And the way that he does that is he made one who perfectly obeyed to give you his righteousness, his obedience. And he made the one who didn't deserve to die, who didn't deserve wrath, to bear wrath and to die on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to God and that we might be considered righteous, even though we're not. That is the message for you and I. So the hard question that we have to ask is not if we are ambassadors. Are you a Christian today? Are you personally trusted in Christ? Then you are. You are. The real question is, are you a good ambassador? Or are you a bad one? Am I a good ambassador? Do I actually take the message or do I not? Because if an ambassador for the United States goes to China and we say, this is the message that you're supposed to share with China, and that ambassador says, I think I'm going to go to Hawaii instead. And he hops a jet to Hawaii and he doesn't share the message. Is he a good ambassador or a bad one? Everybody say together, bad. He's a bad ambassador. Have we jumped ship? Have we gone to Hawaii instead of China? I think oftentimes we fail to be good ambassadors, but what a privilege it is to speak for the king. So, we've seen the timing. We've seen the teacher. We've seen the task. Finally, we're going to wrap up with the 12. In verses 14 through 16, we just get a list of these guys, right? We just get a list. We're going to read it together, and we're going to work our way through them in the coming weeks. They are interesting characters. It was a motley crew, right? Very diverse, very uh, very interesting. Let's read through them, and then I want to make some observations before we wrap up. Verse 14 through 16. <clears throat> Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and of course Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Um, There's the list, right? I have a chart that hopefully will come up behind me. What we see is that in the New Testament, there are four lists, four lists where the disciples, the twelve apostles, are are listed. We see it here in Luke 6, we see it in Mark 3, we see it in Matthew 10, and I think Acts chapter 1. So four lists, and what, when you, if, you, if you spend some time just looking at it a little bit, 
several things jump out at you. Let me just share a few really interesting things. First of all, we see that the group is divided into three groups, right? And I've color-coded them so you can't miss it. Three groups with four each, right? And it's consistent. Now, the names aren't always in the same order, but those four names are always in the same group. That's interesting. Uh, Look at the chart. Who is always at the top? Peter. Peter is always at the top. Who's at the bottom? Boy, I wonder why. Hmm, okay. That's easy, right? <laughs> but why is Peter at the top? That's because he's the leader. In uh, Matthew's gospel, he's called the first Peter. Now, he wasn't the first disciple called. He was the chief. The, the word means chief. So like a tribe or like a group, they have to have a leader. And that, that's what Peter was. He, he was the leader. So he always tops the group. Judas, of course, always is at the bottom for obvious reasons. Um, so even more interesting, if you'll notice, at the, very, the top name of each group is always the same. Do you notice that? So there seem to be three kind of cliques, for lack of a better word, three kind of natural groups that the disciples fell in, but the name at the top of each group is always the same, right? You've got Peter at the top, then you've got Philip, and then you've got James. I think that's indicative that there were leaders even amongst leaders. Peter was the chief leader, but in their groups, most likely there was even leaders of the groups, very interesting. Now notice also, how familiar, how, how familiar are you with the names in the, in the top group? Those first four names. How familiar are you? Those, those guys ring a bell? Do we see them coming up in the Gospels? Peter? Okay, he's all over the Gospels, right? Peter's there. Uh, Andrew, his brother, there. James and John? Yeah, they, they show up quite a bit, right? If I were to ask you to list the 12 disciples and I didn't show you this chart, you would probably say, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and you might get a few others, right? But then some of these other guys, you're like, well, Thaddeus? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Simon? Yeah. No, not Peter. There was another Simon? Yeah, there was. We, we don't know much about these guys, and it's because, well, the Bible doesn't tell us too much about them. And so notice the order. The guys who are most prominent are at the top. The guys who we don't hear much fall in group two and three. We hear a little bit. The guys in group two speak a little bit, but not very much. The guys in group one are so prominent. They were the first called, the first four disciples Jesus called. That makes sense. They're at the top. Also, two sets of what? Brothers, right? That makes sense. Uh, Also, they're from the same region. They're all fishermen. All sorts of reasons why this was the natural, close intimate group with Jesus. And, and, and truly, I think that's what we see in the Gospels is that they were closest to Jesus. Notice, there was a group even smaller yet, right? How many were the closest to Jesus? One, two, what? Three, right? Poor Andrew kind of got left out of that, that group sometimes, and sometimes he was included. So even in the top group that was closest to Jesus, even Andrew wasn't quite most intimate. It's very interesting as we look at the group dynamics here. Uh, Notice also a few other things. There are some key differences. There are some key differences here. Let me just point out a couple. First of all, they came from different professions. So we know several of them were fishermen, right? But not all of them. Simon uh, was a zealot. Uh, Do we know what that was? A zealot was a radical assassin. Literally, this guy was an assassin. Dagger man. That's what it says. Literally, Greek. A dagger man. So he's walking around killing people. He's a trained assassin. In the 12 disciples, an assassin? Yep. (laughs) So uh, he was a radical assassin. And what they wanted to do, they wanted to overthrow Rome. Rome controlled the region. They killed people who were Roman. 
that's basically what they did. They were assassins determined to overthrow the Roman government. But also, get, we have a tax collector in the group, right? And we don't like tax... Do we, anybody like the IRS? Raise your hand. Just kidding. No, nobody, nobody really likes the IRS. Um, sorry, accountants in the group. Uh, nobody really likes the IRS. Um, but this guy was a tax collector for the Roman government. Now, he was Jewish, who was being controlled by Rome. He was a traitor to the Jewish people. They were hated. He was in collusion with Rome. So let me ask you a question. When Simon came in the room, right? And when Matthew came in the room, one works for the Roman government, one kills people who work for the Roman government. That's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Very different professions. Secondly, very different personalities. We're going to see this as we go throughout uh, each of the disciples. But But they were very different, just like you would expect a group of 12 to be. Peter, he was bold, he was brash, he was outspoken, he was quick to talk, slow to listen, foot-shaped mouth, right? He was always sticking it in there, right? He just just talked, he didn't think. He's a leader, charge the hill, and then think about it later, right? Then you have a guy like Andrew, his brother, who's seemingly quiet, reserved, not very outspoken, Uh, very, very interesting. We see one, Nathaniel, he's quick to faith. He just believes it, right? This is Jesus. He's the Son of God. I believe it. He's quick to faith. He just believes everything. And then we've got Thomas, who's what? He doubts. He's skeptical. Show me, right? He's from Missouri, apparently. Um, Just show me, right? All sorts of different personalities. But there are also key similarities. Key similarities. Number one, uh, key similarities, their background. Uh, while they were different, they also were the same in some sense, and that most of them, if not all of them, were from the region of Galilee. That's northern Israel, right? Now, why is that important? Because what's in southern Israel? Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem the center of? It's the political, and more, maybe more importantly, the religious capital for Judaism is in the south. How to liken it? It was like Dallas. It was like Memphis. What's the buckle of the Bible belt? Tulsa, right? the hub in America. Whatever that is, that's what Jerusalem was like. And Jesus stays away from that place. (laughs) He's like, I don't want guys from there. I want guys from the north. They're fishermen. They're, well, they're kind of hicks, to be honest. That's, that's, That's kind of how they thought of that region. They weren't from the south where all the priests and the rabbis, no, they were, they were just from the north, right? That leads us to a second key similarity, their religion. They were all ethnically Jew, and they were all religiously Jewish, just like Jesus was. But most importantly, because they were from the north and not from the south, not a one of them were from the religious elite. No rabbis, no priests, no scribes, no Pharisees, no Sadducees. It would, in other words, they didn't take the megachurch pastor. They didn't take him, right? They, did, they didn't take the missionary who was experienced. That's not. They didn't go to the religious, most trained, memorize the Bible back and forth. That's not who Jesus chose. Thirdly, they all share common faults, and we'll go through these later as we get through them. They all share common faults. Jesus often rebuked all of them for their lack of understanding. Do you not yet understand? They were spiritually dense. They were thick. He, couldn't, he had to keep teaching and teaching because they didn't understand. He rebukes their pride and their self-interest. Many times they argue, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. They're, they're using Jesus, and he rebukes them for it. He gives them his own example of humility. He often says, Oh, you have little what? Faith. Oh, you have little faith. You don't believe me. You, don't, you, you shouldn't respond this way. You don't, you don't trust me. He prays for them because he knows that they are going to desert him 
when the time comes. They had all sorts of flaws and character traits that were just not, not preferable. They didn't, have good re- they didn't have good resumes, right? They didn't have good resumes at all. Which leads us to uh, our final principle. God uses all kinds of people. If the 12 doesn't show us this, then I don't know what does. God uses all kinds of people, broken people, people with faults, people with character traits uh, that are just not good, right? Whatever your personality, all sorts of personalities God uses, all sorts of professions, all sorts of upbringings with all sorts of struggles. God uses all sorts of people. He can use me and he can use you. And the question is, are you willing? Are you willing to be used? So I want to ask a final question. How would you build the spiritual dream team? Would you look for magic? Would you look for MJ? Would you look for Larry Bird? That's not what Jesus did. He chose ordinary men to do extraordinary things, to be on his dream team. MacArthur says this, and we'll close with this quote. The 12 were like the rest of us. They were selected from the unworthy and the unqualified. They did not rise to the highest usefulness because they were somehow different from us. We tend to think uh, that we are worthless nobodies, and and left to ourselves, that would be true. But worthless nobodies are just the kind of people God uses because that is all he has to work with. He can use nobodies. They turned the world upside down. It was not because they had extraordinary talents, unusual intellectual abilities, powerful political influence, or some kind of special social status. They turned the world upside down because God worked in them to do it. And he wants to do the same through you and me. Let's pray.